again, and welcome to the future of. Today's episode will be the future of disinformation. I'm your host, Jonathan Narvi. I am here with John Gray, a uh, friend of many years and the founder of Mention Map, and these days a man who is very much involved with investigating and researching the disinformation that is spreading all over the internet by synthetic and human means alike. We're going to get into this uh, very, very much in depth. But before we do, I want John to, if, if you could introduce yourself a little bit and give people a fuller oh, understanding yes. of your background so that we can get into these, these well, topics. Well, so we can do the deep dive. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, always good to see you. And thanks for inviting me in for the future of disinformation today. Um, you know, usually I preface this moment of every conversation. You remember that old Grateful Dead song, Truckin'? Well, I, I, I pull the line out of there. Thank you, uh, Jerry Garcia, but what a long, strange trip it's been. Um, that, that's really how I'm here. Um, you know, we could trace way back to the unique childhood of uh, many books and uh, a world of analog, but, you know, usually I put it, Jonathan, is it I think it's it's really been driven by this real overriding sense of curiosity. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of jokingly, partly jokingly say that when I started my communications degree at SFU in the olden days, uh, Marshall McLuhan was still alive. Uh, and when I finished, uh, Neil Postman had uh, written Amusing Ourselves to Death. And I sort of frame a lot of how I look at today through, you know, going that far back in the uh, communications theory uh, universe. Uh, you know, so, you know, I guess how I got here today was really this, you know, uh, ultimately 10 years ago, diving in and, you know, the Mention Map's been a really key part of getting me here. Um, so talk about Mention Map a little bit. Yeah, you know, I mean, look, we, uh, I think what's fair to say we built, 10 years ago, one of the first ever, uh, you know, network visualization tools on top of Twitter's API. So um, it looked cool. It was a very sexy, I should say it is a very sexy app. Um, and, you know, it's a great way to look at Twitter, like who's talking to who, who's talking about what. Um, but ultimately is, you know, it was that journey of going, uh, trying to monetize sort of a niche tool, a complex tool. It, it's, it's been a humbling experience. Um, and I won't blame it all on the 2016 um, U.S. election uh, campaign. There were a number of things going on uh, even in the world that I was occupied in at that time. But I said to my co-founder, Travis, I said, you know, it just seems like there's some things going on. Let's see what happens if we plug this bot detection algorithm into our network visualization tool. Well, the week before the inauguration, 2017, is when I ceased ever looking at Twitter the same again. Um, every hashtag, almost every, and I'm not, this isn't hyperbole. It was just like everything I was looking at, I was going, could I find something that doesn't, doesn't have some somewhat suspicious activity connected to the conversation? And, and, you know, really it went from there. You know, 2017, I was fortunate enough, I went to uh, MIT. 
uh, for the first MisinfoCon, a pretty intimate gathering of barely 100 people, journalists and uh, just a variety of people from you know civil society. And, and, and it, needless to say, in February 2017, uh, people were still getting over the reality that this really unique thing, and I'm using unique loosely, um, the result of the U.S. election, we had Brexit, we have all these things unfolding, and I, there's so many questions. And, uh, you know, that's really, you know, where this really got started, Jonathan, was this looking at behavior on Twitter and, and, and using the tool we had to better understand some of the shenanigans were starting to unfold around conversations uh, in the digital space. Well, I couldn't have asked for the greater <laughs> introduction. Uh, and, and now we can really get into our topic, which was sparked sort of last week when we both attended and, and you were speaking at a an event called uh, Democracy and Disinformation, or it might have been reversed. Um, and in attendance, we had a number of um, students and activists and actually I, I can't really speak to the, uh, the the audience necessarily who they were but mm -hmm. you know certainly on stage there was <coughs> yourself there was a, a university professor from I believe UBC Kristen yep. um, Ove yeah and he his specialty was uh, you know something in media communications or mm -hmm. um, and uh, who else? We, we had Lindsay Sample from uh, dis from the discourse, right. as uh, coming at this from very much a journalist perspective, uh, a working journalist perspective. Right, and the thrust of the conversation on stage and actually beyond the stage was, you know, how to deal with harmful speech and and what is harmful speech mm -hmm. and how how it's having an impact. Um, so I I think probably we should create some definitions here um, before we go too far down this rabbit hole of you know, what is it that we're talking about? <laughs> what, what, are the, what are the problems that we're actually dealing with? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, sort of from, from a, a bigger scale down mm -hmm. to specific examples like Russia or China, we can say that well, actually, I'll, I'll let you speak to how do we how do we define the problem and, and define our terms here? Um, so it's still really evolving. And that's one of the reasons I'm really excited to be in the position I'm in. Um, you know, to say that I felt like I've spent three years at times is this really sort of, um, you know, that, that lost voice in the wilderness or at times thinking like, am I crazy? Does anybody really care? <clears throat> Sorry. Um edit that part out. Um, it, so I think we have to start with the acknowledgement that, um, and I try not to engage in really hyperbole around this. Uh, you know, I left my tinfoil hat at home, I promise. Um, the complexity of the issue. So, and, uh, and the issue being? The issue being is... So we can use a number, we can say misinformation, disinformation, but you know, let, let's look at the online ecosystem. Let's talk about, in essence, the, the toxicity that's connected to manipulation and amplification of content, of information that it, sort of the, our core perspective on this is instead of 
getting bogged down into the specific definition of misinformation, disinformation. Because like I say, it's evolving. The group I'm involved with, the Credibility Coalition, I'm involved with the MisInfoSec Working Group, we look at it really from the um, essence of misinformation, misinformation incidents, misinformation campaigns, and we're looking at it through the lens of the intent and the intent to do harm. What's the difference between misinformation and disinformation? Well, again, we're still working through that. And some of the people that, that have originally sort of um, looked at the matrix, and, you know, so I look at Claire Wardell over at First Draft News. Even, you know, Claire's uh, been an early, uh, very involved in the space. Ben Nimmo over at the Digital Forensic Lab, um, one of the leaders in the space. You know, so really what it came down to is um, talking about disinformation um, as being intentional. That's actually fair and easy to understand. Exactly. Um, but sometimes our challenge, and this is where we've worked through as, as a working group, is, um, is, is defining intentionality. Mm. Um, so we are looking at that with another layer, and, and that's really is understanding when there is activity with um, intention with harm attached. Right. Let's look at a... I, I'm sure you, you want to get into the, the statistics of this because oh. you've, you've done some, some research. But maybe I, I wanted to kick off with a specific example of... Um, you remember in the, in the, towards the, the last days of the 2016 U.S. campaign, you had the... I, I, I'm a bit fuzzy on the details, but mm -hmm. I think it was Facebook ads that... Uh, or it might have been um, maybe in, in some internet forum where there were accusations that Clinton's campaign was essentially running a child sex ring out of the basement of a pizza parlor. Mm -hmm. Pizzagate. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, actually, I'll, I'll, you, you remember the, the details of this? I do. Um, and, and so we chalk that up as an incident. Uh, you know, versus a campaign. Um, so a misinformation campaign is something that's um, ongoing, whereas Pizzagate was just one incident as part of a larger campaign. Um, and I think, you know, part of me goes is that um, we're still so hooked into 2016. Um, and one of the challenges is that we're actually now halfway through 2019. We actually really have to go, hey, 2016, that ship has sailed. I'm continuing to um, go down that rabbit hole, continuing to go down to make so much of the conversation we're still having today about Russia, about bots. Um, you know, a lot of great stuff has come out of the Mueller investigation. Um, I think what we have to do is we've got to evolve the conversation forward because guess what? 2016, our adversaries, and by our adversaries, I'm referring to authoritarian, closed society states that are actively involved in a zero-sum game of eroding um, the institutions and our trust in our institutions and liberal democratic values. Maybe you could provide a bit of historical context here because this is obviously not the first uh, kick at the can for these regimes. We're, we're talking yeah. Russia, China, other uh, state actors and, and non-state actors. Um, this is, I mean, it's been going on since the dawn oh, of time. Yeah. We have new tools. And I, and I think that's the key thing, Jonathan, is that um, 
you know, I, I wanted to say is like for me is that a part of this is, is the complexity of what we're dealing with. Um, and this is where I was going where I didn't want to get into too much hyperbole. But I think outside of um, thinking about how we're going to manage our uh, changing climate, um, I think how we look at trying to uh, tackle some currently incurable diseases. Um, I do believe right now the, the, the cancer and the toxicity of what's going on uh, in our uh, digital ecosystem uh, is one of the biggest existential crises that we do have. Um, and again, tinfoil hat left at home. I've been talking a lot lately is that, you know, we talk about cybersecurity. You know, we talk about the importance of uh, securing our networks, securing our data, securing our devices. What we're not talking about is cognitive security. What's actually really happening is it's our brains that are being hacked. You know, we're not talking about the role that we need to elevate into this conversation of some talented people in the cognitive science space. And, and, and I think this is the evolution of what we have to really start moving the conversation to is not um, automated, not bots, not just the platforms. We actually have to start, um, I, I think, acknowledging um, how messaging, how outrage, how doubt, how um, our brains are being manipulated. We have to look at this through a sense of, you know, what are all the different bias of work? You know, confirmation bias. I mean, that in itself, I've seen a fair amount of um, work on one side talking about how citizens, you know, need to start dealing with this. But it's one thing to say, here's the information and um, here's the misinformation. Here's what you need to start knowing about it. But if we can't overcome our own confirmation bias, then what are some of the solutions if we can't? If sorry, we can't... Just, just before we get <laughs> a little bit further in, we should probably define that uh, confirmation bias uh well, you know, buying into that which you agree with. Mm. You know, so if everything I read resonates and is agreeable, I'm less likely to take potential facts that might actually undermine my well-entrenched position. Mm. Mm. Um, so if all I'm doing is reading things that are agreeable and supporting my position, um, it, it, it's difficult for us to start having conversations about um, possibly persuading people that there's another per perspective or point of view or presenting um, facts to suggest that um, their belief that vaccinating their children is um, not a good idea. Sure. Um, but, you know, what I wanted to roll back is, is that you touched on a really important thing, is that this is not new. Um, I love to, you know, point out the example in 44 BC how Octavius printed a coin that had Mark Anthony's head on one side and Cleopatra's on the other, and he distributed those coins in the Senate, and it actually successfully illustrated um, a, a disinformation campaign that Mark Anthony and Cleopatra are out to divide the empire, um, and it helped successfully elevate Octavius eventually to become Augustus Caesar. That was 44 BC. Um, let's fast forward now to 2016, 17, 18, and today. What we have is obviously tools are at disposal. Um, so we have a way different, you know, supply and demand uh, ratio of content <laughs> and consumption. Um, but the biggest thing that I think is fueling the, uh, the challenges in this space is that now we have these tools of the ability to test our content rapidly, A-B test it, create feedback loops. We've got numerous forms in which we can inject memes, we can inject 
fake uh, forged documents. We can essentially bore right out of today's marketer's playbook, um, test, find out what's working, and keep iterating through our, our messaging, um, and then take advantage of micro-targeting. Mm. I think, you know, one... At scale. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, one thing that uh, happened a, a, a few years ago, actually, I guess maybe it's more than 10 years ago, the search engines um, started taking into account your previous searches and, and they're thereby moderating your uh, searches to only show you things that are more akin to things you had already searched. And, you know, so we're, we're developing these silos of information and maybe... I, Maybe I'm I'm more cognizant of it just mm -hmm. because I remember that time before where you would plug in, in in a search term and it would just give you everyone got the same results yeah. and and maybe you know there were biases attached to that approach as well I I suppose but um, now nowadays it's hard to get out of our our bubbles yeah. we're more divided than ever uh, I mean that's almost cliche to say at this point mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, how do you recommend that people get out of those bubbles and and maybe test that test their uh, you know test their biases? Um, you know, I, I start putting this thing sometimes is that you know um, there there's a percentage of the population that um, are avid consumers of information uh, that have uh, a degree of education um, are, you know, have a degree of professionalism and, and, and uh, you know, in terms of careers, in terms of what they do. Um, I think at times is that, you know, where we're failing in this conversation, uh, and I'll get to that, but one of my beefs is that we're not talking enough about what we need to do collectively as a society to elevate overall literacy Mm. Um, we get these really powerful devices, thank you, Apple and such, um, that you know have more computing power today than what landed Neil Armstrong and the crew of Apollo 11 on the moon. Mm. But yet we don't get a little handbook to say, hey, you've got this tool. Um, and it can play a very significant role, as we know mobile these days does. Um, is there a recommendation to maybe turn off some of those alerts that you're getting on your phone? So we think about how our brains are going, oh, look at this headline, oh. Um, how is our worldview, in some cases, being dictated simply by headlines mm. that are coming from not the actual source? But I'm sorry, we don't get our news from Facebook. Well, a lot of people think they do. Exactly, so, but the trouble is yeah. it's actually, it, it is coming from Facebook, but that's not the source. So if we don't know the difference from a headline that I've just maybe clicked through that's from Breitbart hmm. versus the New York Times. Well, and and this gets into cognitive bias as, as well on, on a deeper level. Like you've, you've got um, let's say you you see a fact that you or, or you see a headline you disagree with, and uh, you you disagree agree with it on a gut level. You don't know yet that it's wrong actually, and so you start going to motive. You start going to source, and that's you know these are the tools of a skeptic. But 
you know, you let's say you trust the New York Times implicitly, and they have gotten stories wrong. Yes. Uh, I mean, the whole Russiagate thing for two years, they promoted the conspiracy theory um, that probably significant members, significant numbers of the population, yeah. both in the U.S. and Canada, probably still think. I, I'm guessing a third, possibly up mm-hmm. to nearly half of Americans think that the the American president was some kind of Manchurian candidate, uh, knowingly in league with uh, you know Vladimir Putin, and you know for two years this this was spread. Yep. Uh, so you know it's it's the the disinformation doesn't just happen through social channels, yep. um, and yeah. So I'm I'm curious. Um, it, actually, I had a, I had a question connected to this uh, um, leading up to our conversation, which is, let's say you have the case of a, you know, 10,000 bots, mm-hmm. and they're putting out information um, that is perfectly true. So let's say in the upcoming Canadian election, you have 10,000 bots putting out funny Memes and and images of Trudeau on his laughable uh, in India tour, mm-hmm. and they're all putting out images that have not been photoshopped. Yeah. They're just they're just clips mm-hmm. from the media, yeah. or you know, it's it's just you know, or you know, you could do the same thing on the conservative yeah. side. Yeah. You could do the same thing, Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. You can put out these embarrassing images, um, or or you know criticism that are perfectly valid but it's from robots so what so if so if it's <clears throat> so my issue is, is so yes um look we've had some great through the years i mean uh, you know think about i mean political satire cartoonists i mean none of this is, is, is really new so yeah i mean and and that was one of my points i was talking about is literacy is, is the power of memes uh, mimetic warfare um but you know that aside is yes. If a political figure serves up uh, <laughs> um, easy to make a fun of, um, easy to satirize, um, you know, in, in essence, Saturday Night Live yourself. Um, that's one thing. But my issue is is that when we start deploying synthetic behavior that's anonymous, that's programmatic, uh, that's uh, not transparent. Uh, doing it at volume, that's where I think we start falling into an area of um, you really have to question the motive, the intent behind doing it. You know, so it's a coordinated attack. It's a coordinated activity. Um, it's non-human, and um, it's not transpar- It's not being done transparently. Uh, and the other thing that's very successful behind that is it's not just the also the amplification, but it's those very engagement metrics. So suddenly a bunch of essentially non-human retweets, mm. a bunch of non-human likes, potentially even using a chatbot-like technology to put in a pithy reply. The, so, but, but the key thing is that's manipulating the algorithm as well because the algorithm is dialing into engagement metrics. Thus, now that content's getting pushed further up into people's feeds now. So... My issue is is firmly. Look, I don't care what side of the fence you are politically. If you're using those kinds of techniques and tactics, um, that's just. Uh, you, um, 
adding more cover to the bigger problem, and that's the problem of uh, our actual real adversaries, state actors and their proxies. Um, and it's, again, it's contributing to, I believe, the toxicity of what's going on online. Mm. So for those who maybe are a bit skeptical and think, you know what, it doesn't matter what happens on Twitter and Facebook. I live in the real world. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe we can talk about some real-world impacts um, of misinformation or, or more disinformation campaigns uh, conducted um, online, you know, via via bots or humans, yeah. Yeah. and you know. Uh, so you, you well, you know, I mean, I think part of it, we've got to start, A, looking at some of this beyond simply one incident, right? Like, you know, you know about Pizzagate, that was an incident. <clears throat> if we look at these behaviors, these activities happening over time, happening across multiple platforms, you know, so we've seen, for instance, the DFR lab just put out a, a, a very recent and, and great a bit of investigation around a fake document that was distributed through six different languages, through Medium, through a variety of different um, websites. Um, it was a By really way, unique. They, our, uh, our listeners can't really see your air quotes. So no, but. But yes, <laughs> sorry. I, I know they can't, but it's my it's my way of thinking to myself. Um, so you know, I mean, is. That's part of the challenge here, Jonathan, is the complexities. We have so many, in essence, different attack surfaces by which different content um, can be distributed and done so, like I say, at scale, um, done so anonymously. Uh, and, you know, this is so this isn't just about Facebook. This just isn't about Twitter, um, you know. Hey, turn off the your autoplay on YouTube, for instance. Um, you know, pick a platform. Uh, you know, I, I think I could actually also address you were talking about earlier about search engines. Um, I don't have the exact science by which potentially some of our um, adversaries are operating. Uh, very sophisticated black hat SEO that are manipulating um, results. So, for instance, I get a couple of Google News alerts per day. Um, so that's coming right into my inbox. That's sort of customized for me. Um, imagine weekly, I won't say daily because that's over the top, but at least once a week I get at least one headline into one of my email news alerts that if I didn't stop and actually get beyond the headline to actually look what the source was, I'd be firmly reading an article from Sputnik or from RT Russia Today. Mm. And I ask myself, how is that getting into my email newsletter? Mm. Uh, I don't have the answer, but it, it is, and that takes some effort to manipulate the search algorithm. Mm. So we've been talking about um, how things can go wrong. Let's let's, uh, but let, let's look forward. Tell talk talk to me about the nightmare scenario. Say for because you wanted to talk about you know what could be happening in 2020 or even yeah. beyond. We could talk about the U.S. election up that's upcoming or or you know yeah. Go well, you I think want. part of it is that you know a we should always be having conversations beyond simply elections. This is not an issue that's just simply about elections. You know, obviously we have our own coming up in uh, October. Um, that uh, I will be doing some more, uh, shall we say, looking into. Um, 
you know, then of course uh, we're well on our way to the uh, 2020. Uh, you know, so there's no shortage of elections, and and this is global too. Let's get over ourselves. This isn't just about Canada. This isn't just about U.S. Um, you know, there's obviously going to be um, uh, probably another election in the U.K. coming up, and but we also again have to look at, for instance. Uh, behaviors that have been reported that came out of the Brazilian elections. Um, there's been uh, these behaviors happening in Mexico that we can go back. I can find examples of um, uh, some very sophisticated work going back as far as like 2011, 2012. So what's really interesting is, again, this none of this is new, but it just seems like for it to really get sort of into our conscious, uh, collective conscious now, is it took the election of Donald Trump to start really elevating this conversation of that, hey, um, our digital ecosystem isn't just one of rainbows and unicorns. Mm. Somewhere along the way, some people forgot there's folks with bad intent out there too. Um, there's trolls under the bridge. So I, I want to push back on that a little bit, or it, we, I, th- I think we actually agree for the most part with you know about what I'm going to say, but um, you can feel free oh, to disagree. Absolutely. Oh, we're, we're, we're we just got our, our 10 minute Whoa. flag. So we're, we, we got about, uh, we have a few minutes to wrap this yes. up. Yes. Okay. So I'll, I'll try to be how quick. time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that came up in, in the event a week ago was there's, there, there seemed to be an assumption amongst many of the, um, audience members and certainly amongst certain members of the, um, uh, of, of, of mm-hmm. the speakers on stage that already, you know, we pointed to the election of Donald Trump, we pointed to Brexit, we pointed to Brazil, and and uh, there's an assumption that um, online shenanigans have swayed these uh, crucial elections in some fundamental way. And I, I think we maybe don't have enough data to say either way. I'd like to make the case that, you know, for now, it seems to be somewhat early days where we don't know that the impact was yeah. that crazy. Um, and and, and I wanna, I would, I'd like to make the case yeah. that maybe in the U.S., Trump won because Clinton was a terrible candidate. Mm-hmm. Brexit happened because the... Um, People were simply upset with uh, uh, levels of immigration and and mm-hmm. uh, impacts on uh, the UK's culture and all of these things and and I there's there's this very smug kind of attitude amongst a lot of people it seems to me where it's like oh the politics is going in the wrong way because idiots were manipulated yeah, yeah. so maybe you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, look, so A, um, I do agree. Like, I have a big issue of um, the impact statements. Um, We don't have enough data. I don't know if we've asked the right questions. And um, so I don't, in terms of my research and how I look at this, I'm very skeptical every time I read something where there's claims of impact attached. I'm always interested myself in looking at what intentional behaviors are going on. And so my thing is, is that, again, I'm looking at this from a, a, a long game. A, this 
these types of behaviors and this type of activity has been happening way before Brexit, way before the U.S. election. One could argue a lot of um, Ukraine is Russia's personal little test bed for a lot of this stuff. So go back to 2014. Um, so I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm very leery about assigning um, the impact and, and, and drawing that, you know, direct, you know, cause correlation mm -hmm. that um, because this happened, this is the outcome. One of my other things, though, that I think sometimes is that we think so much in this conversation about um, getting somebody to vote a particular way. One of my things that I like to put out there just being the contrarian me and moving towards the great wrap-up we're going to have is what about the a way to manipulate the narratives mm. to get people not to do something. Mm. One of my great concerns is, are elements of voter suppression, uh, misleading the electorate, um, you know, when to vote, how to vote, if you can vote, and when, why to vote at all. And so if part of the grand zero-sum game of our adversaries, and I'm very clear, I'm talking about adversar our adversaries that are authoritarian nations that do not have a vested interest in the freedom of speech, the freedom of thought, the freedom of movement, the freedom to gather. Um, if it is about eroding the very values, the, our imperfect liberal democracy, eroding the trust in our institutions, then convincing us that they're not worth voting for is a pretty good tactic, too. Hmm. On that note, we're going to have to wrap up. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. I've been, I've been talking with John Gray about the future of disinformation. Thank you for listening. Thanks for having me, Jonathan.